Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Brandy Ledford. Brandy is a multi-talented actress and former model with a remarkable career spanning over three decades. She's received multiple Best Actress nominations for her outstanding performances in critically acclaimed films and TV series, including Baywatch, Modern Family and Rat Race. However, today Brandy's focus goes beyond her successful acting career. Her biggest passion lies in being a devoted mother of her two sons. As a strong advocate for sobriety, she openly discusses her journey to recovery from addiction and trauma, inspiring others to seek help and find hope. Brandy's ultimate goal is to spread positivity and use her experiences to make a difference within the recovery community. She shares her story with the aim to empower and encourage others to find their strength. And with that, dialing in from the West Coast of the US, I'd love to welcome Brandy onto the show. Brandy, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? Hi, I'm having a really good day and I'm really happy to be here. I'm so, so excited that we've managed to align the stars and join together in this conversation today. I was sharing that I had discovered you across social media as we do these days. And when I started to look into your story and what you're about, I just thought I, I must, must have you on the show. So thank you so much for agreeing to come and share your story today. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Gosh, you know, when you were reading my bio just now, I almost started crying. Like, I can't believe that's my bio. <laughs> mm, it's amazing, isn't it? When we look back at our achievements and considering a lot of your successes were probably happening while you were still in the throes of addiction and trauma, it's, it's quite remarkable to read back and reflect and then to see mm. where you are today. Mm. Now we kick off each episode by just giving our audience a little opportunity to get to know the guest that's in the chair. So I'd love to start off Brandy by asking you, where do you live? What does an average day look like and what do you do for fun? Well, I live in Los Angeles, uh, California, and my day always starts off with prayer and meditation, uh, regardless of how much time I have. Um, I generally, you know, my son gets up, I get him ready for school or now camp because we're summer. Um, I work out. I try to exercise every day, even if it's just a short walk or a really intense workout. Um, I try to eat healthy and keep in touch with um, my recovery program, whether I, I go to a 12-step meeting or, you know, hang out with friends. I'm on the board of a couple great foundations that are recovery-based, Red Songbird Foundation and The Friendly House. And so I might have a meeting with one of those um, uh, foundations for upcoming events. Um, I like to relax, too. Um, mm. And then, you know, I get my son, I'm a full-time mom right now. So I get my son from camp or school and I take him to his extracurricular activities. I try to enrich his life. Um, 
And, you know, my husband comes home and we have try to do family dinner together often. I love to watch TV uh, at night or read a book. For fun, I love to go roller skating on the beach. Um, I love to shop. I love, yes. I love to hang out with my girlfriends. My girlfriends are my lifelines. And so any chance I get to spend time with my girlfriends is super fun for me. Um, I like to go hiking. And I, I mm. almost anything workout or exercise-based makes me really happy. Um, I love to go to movies. I love to travel so much. Mm, me too. Yes, absolutely. Travel's right up there for me. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. That sounds like a very enriched full life. And I'm really excited to hear more about how you've come to create this beautiful life that you live today. But let's start with the photo. Mm -hmm. Brandy, I've asked you to bring in a photo today from a time in your life where you are hiding behind a smile. So you were projecting one version of yourself to the outside world, but the reality was on the inside, you were really struggling. Could you please describe for our listeners what is this photo? What am I looking at here? And what was going on for you at that time in your life? So, you know, um, first of all, this is such a great concept for a podcast and for any style of talk show to really look honestly at the facades we create for the world and for ourselves, perhaps. I love this concept that you've come up with. Um, Thank you. And looking back at some of the photos I was looking at to choose which one to use, um, you know, was an interesting experience in itself because there were so many photos to choose from where I wasn't living an authentic life and I was hiding behind my smile, particularly in the photo, um, you know, and so it, it was a mixed feeling for me because some of the, you know, the most recent photo like the one I sent you was 12 years ago. So I have this in, impactful memory of being miserable and pretending I wasn't, but going into my present time, I, it was so incredible to be able to look at that and be so grateful that I'm not her anymore. Mm. Um, so that was an, a, a really um, profound experience for me. So thank you for that. That particular photo was taken um, in this really beautiful um, part of this off beaten track at, in Kauai, Hawaii, uh, the island of Kauai, um, which I go to a lot. I, I own a business there, and so I'm there a lot. And um, I was definitely in my addiction. I had relapsed from a long, long-term sobriety, and it was during that particular photo and during those days and weeks surrounding that time um, that I was actively addicted to pain pills and had started drinking alcohol again. Um, and I was living a lie in a lot of ways in my personal life. And I remember standing on that bridge. Um, my husband took that photo and it was, it was like all I could do to just make it look like I was okay. And mm -hmm. I wasn't okay at all on the inside, but mm -hmm that appearance of being okay was so important to me so that I wouldn't get caught, you know, I wouldn't get found out. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. What was that feeling like of not being okay? Like how did you know on the inside that things weren't right? I was, um, I was really, really 
scared all the time. You know, I was really tense. I'd wake up very anxious. I'd wake up shaking. Um, you know, I'd also, I want to say that that particular photo, I had suffered a miscarriage not too soon after that. Um, and it was just like, I was sad. You know, I was sad. Um, I wasn't healthy. And I just felt lost. You know, I felt really lost. I didn't feel anchored. I, and I, I sort of felt like I was going downhill real fast. Mm. But what was going on for you in terms of then your career at that time? Was there quite a contrast between how you were feeling on the inside to what you were portraying? Obviously, you were smiling in the photo and giving off this appearance like everything was okay. But what about your career? And I know you've had a big, colorful career. What was happening at that time in that part of your world? I had not only given up on myself at that time in my life, I'd given up on my career as well. I had... Mm no ambition for it. Um, in fact, when I got sober, the first thing I, one of the first things I did was call my agent and say, I need to get back to work. Like mm. I gave up on myself in a lot of ways. Mm. So my career at that point had been non-existent. You know, I hadn't even reached out to my team and I've had the same team of managers and agents since I was twenties in my twenties. And, mm. um, and so sure enough, I booked a job right away when I got sober and then I, booked another job, but then I got pregnant, so I couldn't work. But anyway, <laughs> it was just, it was not, um, it was non-existent in my career. And I, and, you know, it's kind of tragic because I had spent my entire adult life and, and even in my late teens, really focused on my career, really dedicated to it and, and, and really ambitious. And I worked so hard because of that. And then, you know, I gave that all up. It's amazing how addiction can suck the life out of you and all of your passions and your dreams just whittle away because your soul focus becomes just this rat race, but also, pardon the pun, survival. Ah, that's a good one. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's like you just wake up every day and all of that spark and ambition that you once had is gone. And it's just like, how am I going to get through today? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Brandy, can we take a step back now mm -hmm. to understand the person that became addicted to alcohol and pain pills? I think we need to understand little Brandy, the Brandy that grew up. What was your childhood like? What was the environment like? And when were you first exposed to alcohol? So I, I grew up in Redondo Beach, um, California, just a little beach girl. I... Um, I probably had my first real taste of alcohol um, before I was five, just family party. And, you know, I remember having a sip of someone's alcohol and liking that feeling. I remember I used to open um, a family member's beer cans and, you know, liking that and the sound. And then later, you know, eating the olive or the little pearl onion out of, someone's martini and it just became it was like there was all this going on in my life in the 70s everybody everything was a party and um and then by the time I was 11 I was smoking pot um by 14 I had done been I had started doing cocaine and that lasted up until I was 24 um and I got drunk for the first time when I was 15 and then I um I drank and partied a lot on weekends um I, you know I, st I stayed in high school but I was definitely 
um, boy crazy and driven by partying and alcohol and cocaine. Mm. Um, more than your average just experimenting team. You know, I was pretty, pretty, pretty hooked into it. Um, and I'd been to jail twice before I was 17 um, for wow. dr- drinking um, and driving and then drunk in public, you know. So it's just a huge part of my childhood is this um, drug and alcohol use with no boundaries and no idea that I um, was going to turn into like a drug addict or an alcoholic. You know, it was just mm. party party based. Mm, yeah, it, it was associated with having fun mm-hmm. rather than it being something that you may not have had control over. I have to ask, Brandy, those times that you were put into jail – what impact did that have? Did that scare you or was it all part of the story and the color of what you were doing at the time? I wish it scared me. That's such a great question. No one's ever asked me that. Not only did it not scare me, but the first time when I was ordered, court ordered to AA, I had to do six months court ordered. It didn't make an impact on me at all, you know, which is interesting because now I, I go to um, 12 step meetings a lot and I see a lot of court ordered people there, especially young people. Mm. And I just pray for them because I know for me, it wasn't cut and dry. It wasn't, you know, you would think like, Oh God, this thing happened. I ended up in jail. I ended up in, I got my license taken away at 16, which was like the only thing I lived for was to get my driver's license. And my dad bought me a car and I got to drive my little 65 Volkswagen bug around Redondo beach, but then I lost my license. And so you think I would learn that lesson, but that is not what drug and alcohol addiction ever did for me. It never gave me a lesson (laughs) that I learned Mm. by sheer, you know, uh, consequence. It, it sort of just, became something I needed to do better next time, hide better next time. It almost, for me, I so relate to that. I almost was just like, well, how can I manipulate the system better? I need to get smarter. Like there's got to be a workaround that I haven't figured out yet. Exactly. So, so true, isn't it? I, I too am part of 12 step fellowship and the, my home group that I go to, we often have court ordered people coming along to that meeting. And like you said, mm-hmm. they're often very young and it's the same. I have the same thought, you know, you hope and pray mm-hmm. that they get it and that they get it the first time, but so often it's not the case. And I think in many ways it comes back to this idea of until you're ready, mm-hmm. nothing's going to get through. Like you I, have to be no. so ready. Mm-hmm. You do. And, um, and then there's moments along that path too, where you're you're ready and you're willing and you're sober and you're and you and you worked it out. But for me, you know, then the maintenance, what you do daily, has become so important to me because mm-hmm. I don't ever want to forget that that was my journey and that was my path, um, and that I could easily slip down real quick if I, you know, as we say, rest on my laurels you know, get real Mm. complacent. Um, Mm. Because once you are ready and once you are willing and you're ready to take that leap, I don't think it's an automatic, oh good, now I'm sober forever and I don't have to have any of those problems. It's like I have to do the amount of work on a daily basis to stay in a healthy space. Mm. It's so true, isn't it? And I think that's really the difference between, because you can meet people in sobriety who have, decades of continual sobriety under their belt but they still may not seem fulfilled or or happy Mm -hmm. they're kind of just 
trudging along. And, and I know for me, like, that's not what I want. And it's really, you've just touched on it. It's when I meet women in the rooms and men who are working a daily program, who continue putting the same amount of effort into their recovery that they did in the first 30, 60, 90 days. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that have this, this glow about them and this zest for life that I'm so drawn to. It's almost energetic. Yes, I agree. Mm. And it is that idea of it's, it's a daily reprieve. contingent on the maintenance of that program. You touched on a couple of those things earlier, like prayer and meditation, exercise. What are the other things that you do to really help you to plug in on a daily basis? Uh, Contact with a sponsor, you know, a mentor, um, sober sisters every day, Um, meetings and, well, you know, and some days get really busy. So some days aren't, you know, I don't have all this time to do all this stuff, but Nothing stops me from prayer and I can do a meditation Mm -hmm. when I'm driving or walking, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I, what I've loved, probably one of the only things I really loved about the pandemic is it gave us zoom and zoom gave us a ton of opportunities to connect with our 12 step fellowship in a way that um, I have kept up. So I'll be in the car or I'll be doing errands and I'll, and I'll, find a, a Zoom 12-step meeting that I can log on to from wherever I am and just sort of listen to it like a podcast. Often I will sit and focus and share and be engaged, but there are times when I just need to hear um, mm. what people are saying. And so that's really in the last three years uh, has been so beneficial and so great for me. Then there are, you know, speaker tapes and things you can listen to online. There's so many resources online now. Um, mm. there's really no excuse now, is there? Yeah, no. Like you, like you said, you know, back in the day, yeah. you used to have to, I, I've, I've spoken to old timers who, when they were in their first 90 days, they would walk because they didn't have cars, they'd lost their licenses and they would yeah. walk from their breakfast meeting to their lunch meeting. And then they'd finish the lunch meeting, maybe go for fellowship after, grab a coffee, and then they'd walk to another meeting yeah. that evening, three meetings yeah. in a day, particularly over the weekends. And I think to myself, Gosh, how easy is it for us today? I myself am a Zoom baby. So I got sober on the 24th of February, 2020, just as the world started to shut down. Yes. So three and a half years ago now. And, you know, I I didn't know any difference. So for me, Zoom was the way that I got sober. And then when the world started to open up again and I was able to get to -to face-to-face meetings, it was incredible because I was able to experience that side of the triangle, that unity, that fellowship that people spoke about that I hadn't really been able to tap into prior to that. But yeah, just having, having that connection and that, that contact to such a powerful program really at the tips of our fingers is, is such a blessing. It really is, you know, and it's funny because some of the old timers that I know don't like Zoom meetings at all. Mm, yeah. at all. But congratulations <laughs> on getting and staying sober through a pandemic. That's amazing. Oh, thank you, Brandy. <laughs> Having to adopt a whole new way of living while in quarantine and isolation. Mm. And, and then even, you know, reintegrating back to when we got to be in the real world. I have just started um, really attending more in-person meetings as well. And it's a really, I remember how much I loved in-person meetings. And so I've been going to a lot more lately, um, Mm. really, really cool. Yeah. I find for me, there's something like, like if, if I'm feeling a little off the beam, if I'm feeling a little scratchy as my sponsor likes to describe it, then I can get 
a little bit of relief from a Zoom meeting, but when I get into a room and I'm I'm surrounded by other alcoholics in recovery and we're all sharing our stories, yeah. that connection that you get, it's almost like I feel like I'm plugging myself back into the wall socket and I'm getting recharged and I get this energy and my cup starts to overflow and then I can enter back out into the world and, I, and I'm a more almost like a recalibrated human being yeah. I'm back on the beam. I love that. Yes, I, I definitely get recalibrated after me, regardless. Because you always hear something you need to hear, or you're always able to help someone that needs to hear what you have to say. And so I speak a lot. They, you know, I do a lot of meetings where I speak. And I spoke last week at a meeting, and I was sure it was a failure. I was like, that was so terrible. What was I doing? <laughs> and uh, like six women came up to me afterwards and were so honor like they just it just helped them you know and so I don't know mm. I, I just pray that to God that he will help me be of service and help me be useful and to guide me so that I you know don't have all this experience that I've had doesn't go to waste like if I could just mm. use it to help someone else and that's sort of like how I was feeling about when I was 16 and was court ordered to go to meetings um I didn't, that didn't help me as far as I know, but it, what it does for me today is have so much compassion for those girls that I see in the rooms who are 16 right now, you know, or mm -hmm. anybody court ordered, but really the young people, like I really get it and I really understand where they're at because I've mm -hmm. been there. And so that's kind of something I like to remember. Another thing I do to stay connected is I do gratitude lists and try to send them and exchange them with my girlfriends who are in recovery. Yes. And you know, I've actually fallen off that a little bit. I used to do a lot, but it's so helpful when you're feeling, especially if I'm feeling antsy or like you said, scratchy, I just got to do some gratitude. And mm. even if I don't feel like it, I still have to like, remember, I, you know, just the small things because they take it for granted. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? I, I'm exactly the same. I have a gratitude practice that I share with a group of women every single morning. And it's particularly during the times that I don't want to do it, that I get the most benefit from just putting pen to paper or in this case, thumb to a screen yeah. and, you know, you get it into WhatsApp, send it across and then reading everybody else's and being reminded of all of the, the small beauties in life. Isn't that so inspiring? My friend, Hillary Roberts, um, she's the founder of the foundation, the Red Songbird that I'm on the board of. And um, boy, she sends the best gratitude lists. And I'm always like, oh yeah, that. And most of hers are grateful for other people and what they got to go experience or uh, some joy or incredible thing that happened or some health related bonus that happened for a friend of hers. Like she's so generous about her gratitude about what other people, and I'm inspired by that. I'm like, Oh yeah, this great thing just happened to my best friend and my sister and this thing. And it's, it's just this beautiful contagion of good feeling and of joy and of just remembering that even when things are really tough, we have, faith in a higher power that can lead us out of whatever we're in, whatever darkness mm. might be feeling mm. at the time. You just mentioned higher power and you talk about how you pray to God. I also pray to God. I don't know exactly what it is for me, but it's, it's something greater than me and it's an energy. And I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but Brandy, I'd love you to share with our listeners how did you conceptualize a higher power or, or something greater than yourself that you allow to guide you through this life? 
So when I was in my early 20s, um, I found God for the first time. I didn't grow up religious or with any God at all in my life. And, but I was baptized when I was in my early 20s, and I um, became a Christian. Um, and I went to church, and I did classical, I mean, you know, like a classic Christian working actress thing. Like, I went to church sometimes. I prayed. I believed in God. I believe in Jesus. Like, that's that's what my life was like. But I wasn't using God as a higher power. I was still using drugs and alcohol as a higher power. I was using men and money and shopping and work. Not shopping, work. You know, well, shopping too. <laughs> but, you know, like, any form of escape. And so when I... I had about 10, 12 years of dry sobriety. I didn't drink or use drugs or alcohol for a stretch of time. And I was at church, um, but I was definitely alcoholic. Like I, w I had the ism, you know, I didn't drink alcohol, but I still had the ism. And so I was just running on self-will for a long time. And so when I inevitably relapsed, um, it was a really terrible time for me. And that is when I completely shut God out of my life. He didn't leave me, but I, I just stopped praying, stopped going to church, stopped thinking of God. When I went to rehab and when I got sober and for now over 11 years of sobriety, I have had such an incredible, like close bond and relationship with my higher power. Like AA has given me a lot of things, but the best thing it gave me is a connection to um, a God that even as a born again Christian I didn't have because it was sort of conditional. And now I feel mm -hmm. like God is everything. And even in my darkest times, even when I'm tempted, even when I'm, you know, frustrated, all the things that like, I don't believe for a second that God is going to ever walk away from me or judge me. I don't have an, a, I don't have a concept of a, fire and brimstone judging God that I have to be perfect for. I just have like this concept of a loving higher power who guides me and who is there and who I can trust. Um, and so it just sort of worked for me with everything that I see in the program, everything I see in the 12 step, you know, world. It just, it fits so beautifully for me and it's such a cool connection that I feel like I've really been given as a gift as a result of um, this recovery world. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for describing that and sharing your experience around that. I know that for many, many people who step into 12-step recovery, that's really the resistance point and they'll see God on the wall and they'll either turn around and walk back out or they'll put a wall up. And and often, you know, if you've got a wall up and you're sitting there in the rooms, you're blocking the message from coming into your heart. And, and until you receive that message truly from a place within your heart, it's very, very hard, I think, for for you to get recovery and to be able to step into this life. And just to know that, as it says, it can be anything. It's it's your concept of a higher mm -hmm. power. It doesn't need to be religious. I think for me, 12-step fellowship is a spiritual program. It's, it's not a religious program. And I know many, many people agree with that. And I think the other thing that I've really noticed is it seems to be the point where when somebody fully surrenders and says, this was my experience, which I'll talk to. I came into the rooms and I was so ready. I was broken. And I was basically like, 
you just show me what to do because my hands are up. I'm, I'm handing it over. So I feel lucky because I know that I was really willing from the outset. Mm -hmm. Many people aren't, but it seems to be that moment when people get to that ultimate surrender and they throw their hands up and they say, just show me what to do. And they start to develop their own relationship with a higher power that their shoulders drop and they start to breathe easier. And all of a sudden they seem lighter in their energy and their existence because it's like, oh, I don't have to be the, I'm no longer in control. Like I don't have to run the show. Like there is something bigger out there. And, and, and for me, like God is love. So to live from a place of openness to this whole concept is a lot more freeing. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. It's a real, there's a real freedom in it mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to manage and control everything, which clearly hasn't worked if you've ever been <laughs> in the rooms. <laughs> you know, it, I love everything you just said. God is love. I, that's my concept. And I feel actually really grateful that I didn't grow up with um, a mean, judgmental, damning God, because a lot of people I see come into the rooms and they are anti-God or become atheist or at the very least agnostic because of the way they grew up with a punishing God. And I just don't feel like that at all. Like I've never felt that type of um, negativity towards a higher power. I also feel like... Um, it's great that like, to me, my Christianity is spiritual and not religious either, because I don't like religion. I'm not religious. Even if I'm at church, I'm not religious. You know, I'm a non-fundamental Christian. I'm, I believe just that there's unconditional love and non-judgment and everyone just do the best you can. Right. And so that's why I feel like God is nothing but love, because that's what love is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about a higher power in uh, in recovery, of course, it can be the ocean. It can. You always hear people say it can be a light bulb or a doorknob or whatever. But whatever makes it, or the rooms, right? Like a lot of people have that. I'm just really glad that I have um, a loving God. Mm, mm. Brandy, you spoke a little bit earlier about being dry for 12 years, and you also referred to the isms. Now, for anybody who's listening along today and, and they're not sure what either of those terms mean, I'd love for you to go into a little bit more explanation about what does it mean to be a dry drunk and, and what are these isms that you talk about? So there's so many acronyms for ism that I've heard, but the best one is I, self, me. So you just, I, self, me, like everything is just this self-centeredness. And so all your decisions are made on how it benefits you and not thinking of others, right? Um, the difference for me now is I have people I contact if I don't know what to do, if I'm in my ego, if I'm in my ism, um, I'll reach out and I'll say, hey, check me on this. And like, I'll call my sober sister or my mentor and I'll be like, what do you, what is this like? What do I do? You know, and they're always objective. So they always give me the right or I pray about it now instead of just going off on my own and doing whatever I wanted. Alcoholism to me never goes away. I'm in recovery. I'm not cured. I'm always one drink away from. Well, for me, I think I'll die. Like, I don't think I could handle another relapse. Um, so when I say dry drunk um, and I, that I had that ism, it's like I didn't touch those substances for t 12 years, but I didn't have a program of recovery. I didn't have 12 steps to guide me. I didn't have good 
sponsorship. So another word for God, another an acronym for God that I love that people say in the rooms is good orderly direction, G-O-D. And I didn't have good orderly direction. I had whatever Brandy wanted to do, she was going to do. And that definitely, um, you know, pissed off my family members. I alienated my then husband, my older son, because I just did what I wanted to do. And I didn't have sounding boards and I didn't have um, guiding principles the way I do now. I didn't have that kind of conscience. And also, I was sort of restless, irritable, and discontent for those entire 12 years. I mean, there were moments of joy and happiness. I worked the most in my life. Like, I was a working actress, so dream come true forever. You know, I got nominated for some great awards. I wasn't drinking or using at that time. I was just not capable of being honest or vulnerable. I probably would have been a better actress if I had been, because I had this wall, this facade, this behind the smile. I mean, I was like, it's funny too, because I was going to p- choose a picture from my early acting days because it was the same sort of, and people would say of me, wow, you're so confident. And I would say, it's a facade. It's all just a wall. But, um, but that one picture I sent you actually is a little more heartbreaking because it was during my relapse and it was all mm. a lie. Um, but yeah, I, I just feel like when I say dry drunk and when I know people when, who are dry, it's because they don't have a program of recovery. I didn't have, I wasn't even being honest with my therapist about a lot of stuff going on in my life because I wasn't talking about, I was always focused on someone else and what they did to me instead of my part. Instead of what I needed to do to heal and what I needed to do to get real grounded in truth. And so without that program, you know, I always say sort of the worst decision I ever made was stone cold sober. I decided I could drink again. (laughs) That's because I didn't remember that I was an alcoholic and can't drink. You know, I can't have one shot of tequila I can't do one line of cocaine. I mean, I never could, but like, I can't just do no that. Way. No, I'm But I mean, I can't, <laughs> I can't sip that new fun wine that everyone's talking about. Like, that's not who I am. And I forgot that. So I thought because I was dry, I didn't have a program of recovery. I thought I could go back and drink again. And I thought I could drink like a lady and I couldn't, and I never did. And I never could. And so <sighs> To remember my last drunk, like there's a saying and it says, if you haven't, if you can't remember your last drunk, you haven't had your last drink. And I like to remember that I relapsed from a long period of not drinking because I thought I could drink again. And so I really like to remember that that last, that relapse that lasted a year and a half brought me into the hospital. I almost died. I ended up alienating everybody who loved me and cared about me. Um, And I was handcuffed to a gurney and dragged out of my house, sent to a hospital in an ambulance. And that was the night of my last drunk. Um, And so if I didn't have a program of recovery, I'm sure I would be dead. Um, Mm. Yeah. Mm. What changed for you in that moment? It sounds like that was where the f- the switch flipped because yeah. obviously you'd been exposed to the world of recovery from, from your teenage years. What was it about that moment where you finally decided you'd had enough? I saw myself. I really saw myself in other 
my best friend was there. She came to the hospital in the middle of the night and she just looked at me like, you need help. I was actually not, the, the switch didn't flip that night because I was still determined to not go to rehab the next day. And there, I'm hooked up to two IVs. I'm dying and I still don't think I have a problem. I just wasn't willing to admit it. You know, I was so scared. But I saw worth in her eyes and I saw that I mattered and that I deserved a second chance. And so I agreed to go to rehab um, that morning. I, I, from, from the hospital, I decided to go to rehab. And when I got to rehab, I learned about worthiness. I learned about the disease of alcoholism. And that's when the switch flipped, when I went, oh, mm. I'm an alcoholic. And I have to really face all of this head on and I did and do the work. Mm. Mm. What are your thoughts about people today who are saying we shouldn't be using the term alcoholic because it's, it's a negative term? I know. I mean, you're not supposed to say woman anymore either. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't care. I, I like, I know there's, they're supposed to say substance abuse disorder or all these things. I don't, I'm, I don't know enough about it. I think I'm too mm. old for that shit. I hate that. I don't like, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. What, what it, tell me what the, what's the pros and cons. Well, I think there's, it's an interesting argument and I, I, I'm the same as you, Brandy. I identify as an alcoholic. And for me, when I was explained what an alcoholic actually is rather than what I thought it was, I was, I was happy. I was willing to identify as an alcoholic. In fact, I'm incredibly proud that I'm an alcoholic in recovery because anybody who is in recovery, I have deep respect for because I've walked the path, I know the journey, and it is not easy. So my hats are off to anybody that identifies as an alcoholic. The argument is from one side is that when we use the term alcoholic, because it has such a negative stigma and there is this idea that an alcoholic, to be an alcoholic, you have to have lost everything, be homeless, drinking out of a brown paper bag because there's that such a strong stereotype that many people don't identify with the stereotype and therefore they're too afraid to ask for help because they don't want the shame associated now i fully understand that argument but where i sit is that if we were able to just educate people mm. around what an alcoholic actually is, it's a person that once they take one drink, they can't stop. No. They obsess about drinking when they're not drinking, but that, that, that we're sick people, not bad people. And many, many, many thousands, millions of people out there who are alcoholics are also incredibly successful people. Then I think we can change the conversation. So my opinion, my stance is let's not shy away from it. Let's lean into it. Let's shine a light on this shame mm -hmm. so that it can't survive in secrecy. You know, I think you said the key word, which is education. It's just about educating people mm. you know and you hear that all the time in a in 12-step rooms you hear oh, I didn't think I was an alcoholic I wasn't that guy under the bridge but I think today people more people understand that you're not going to be that homeless guy under the bridge necessarily I mean there's moms 
taking their preschoolers to preschool high on Xanax at eight mm-hmm. in the morning. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't, I don't know if you said the substitute word or said, Oh, you're a substance abuse. No, yeah. So I don't know there's if gray like- area drinking, there's substance use disorder. But at the end of the day, I think if you have a dependency or when you take one, you can't stop, then that's my definition of an alcoholic. And I don't think that's a bad word. I don't think we need to shy away from it. I don't either. And it's also worked for millions of people to identify as alcoholics in recovery. Um, mm-hmm. You're not going to change that. You're not going to change that at all. I mean, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do feel like there can be a broader definition for people who don't want to identify that way. And if it helps them, just like there's a lot of different ways of getting and staying sober and being in recovery. And it doesn't have to be a 12-step program. That's just what works for me. Um, lots of different things work for lots of different people. Um, but I'm going to identify as an alcoholic because I'm an alcoholic. Mm, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. I'd love to know, Brandy, you know, it, it's over 11 years ago when you, you did this final and your last stint of recovery, which is, is the stint that you're in now. How long did it take you to rebuild your life from that, that ultimate rock bottom to where you are today? Boy, oh boy. <laughs> I feel like it's an ongoing process. Uh, my life is not completely rebuilt. You know, there's still um, stuff that happens in our lives. Uh, but I would say that I did 90 days of treatment and then I did an, a year and a half um, at a IOP and then I did 90 meetings in 90 days after that. So I did about two years of pretty comprehensive, hardcore recovery work. Um, and, you know, I also had a surprise pregnancy. So I got pregnant three days when I out of rehab, um, which I didn't expect. <laughs> I know. And so I, you know, I had a newborn uh, within the first year, well, you know, nine months. And I definitely um, wouldn't say that that is a cohesive time to rebuild your life. But along the way, I started learning some principles that I didn't have, I didn't grow up with, and I didn't have as a young adult. And a lot of those had to do with being a a boundary setter and, you know, principled woman of integrity. And I learn that still every day as I go along. Um, but when I started forming community, and I actually have to say, I think Instagram, for me, had a huge part to play in building a sobriety recovery community that helped me make an impact. Um, and it was very impactful for me, because I can see now my life taking shape away from being an actress. I'll always have that, right? I'll always have my history um, as an actress. If I want to go back to work as an actress, I can. But I have more meaningful goals now and more ambition to do good for the greater whole, right? Not just Mm. for me as an actress. I benefit me, you know, and my agents and managers, maybe people who watch me on TV. But really, that's a self-serving job there. I'm now really motivated in a different way to help others, to be of service, um, to be an inspiration, if I can't, you know, humbly, if that's even possible, but in a way that makes me feel like my life is getting rebuilt. But also as a mother, 
so I have a 10 year old and a 27 year old and I'm best friends with my 27 year old. We rebuilt our relationship um, due to very hard work and huge grace and lots of forgiveness on his part. And, um, and we are really, really, really close. And as soon as I really realized that, that I could rebuild my relationship with my child, mm. it was like almost like being reborn and rebuilt because I could now mother my young son. Like he's never seen me drunk or high. He's never, I mean, he has me full. He has full mom. And, um, and my husband, you know, we've been really able to repair a lot of damage that was done. Um, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of healing that takes place and that I, I give him a lot of credit for, for doing the work to heal. And so I can't really say it took this long to rebuild my life because it's a process. We're still rebuilding, right? There's still stuff going on today that I'm learning yeah. and, and growing from. A continual journey. Yeah. Brandy, how do you manage life's ups and downs sober? Because I know for, for me as, as an alcoholic and an addict, I used to drink and use on a feeling, particularly a negative feeling if I didn't want to feel it. Mm -hmm. Now we get sober and we have to learn how to do those feelings without taking something to, to numb or soften the edges. So what, what, what tools or techniques do you have to manage that? Well, if alcohol worked, I would be drinking it. <laughs> the truth is it just doesn't work. And so I have to not drink or use no matter what. And there are big ups and downs that go on in our life. I've had some stuff happen recently that's been super overwhelming. And I just have the tools. I have a spiritual toolkit that I learned and picked up in this program. Um, I have people I can trust that I can lean on. Um, and sometimes they just have a good old cry. And, you know, I have learned that feelings pass. It's super hard for me when I'm like in it and I'm full of the anxious or sad or angry or confusion that happens with life. Um, you got to sit with it. You know, I just know I have to sit with it and I know I have to reach out and use every tool in my toolkit sometimes, like literally everything. And then still, I still don't feel like great and I just have to sit in it and I, I like tea. I drink a lot of tea and there's a tea called tension tamer tea that helps me. I'm drinking tea. Yeah. Yes. I swear by tension tamer tea. I used to have to take, you know, Valium to calm down and tension tamer tea, man, it helps. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes you're just in it and you just have to stay. And then, you know, by life experience that you can get to the other side. Mm -hmm. So for having faith, um, I'd say my number one thing is to pray and, and then call someone and talk it out. Mm. You know, I also have outside help. Um, it's really crucial for me. Yeah, so important, isn't it? I think the point that you just touched on there really resonates with me. It's almost like a reframing of our neural pathways in that when, for, for you and I, since we were teenagers, we would take something which would give us an instant shift in our reality. Yeah. When you stop drinking and using, you lose the instantaneous effect of those substances. 
you can, you at the end of the day, when you learn to sit in it, you still come out the other side, you still get to the same point, but maybe it takes hours, days, sometimes weeks, but it's in that uncomfortability and it's in that, you know, I talk, I call it learning to sit in the shit. When you learn how to do that, that's where the growth is. And that's why I believe when you meet people in recovery, they have this deep, deep understanding of who they are because they have a relationship with themselves that is so pure and so authentic and it isn't clouded by anything outside of themselves when they're working a, a program. I should yeah. caveat that. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And if you're not working a program, you end up dry and mm. you make, end up making decisions that even inevitably, well, for me, lead to drinking and using. And mm. I cannot drink or use no matter what. So I'm not confused about the fact that I can't drink alcohol. You know what I mean? I think when you really understand that, then you do whatever you can to not look for that escape. It's quite freeing, isn't it, as well, having that acceptance because all of a sudden the mental gymnastics goes away. There's no more back and forth in your mind. You can just fully accept it. And, you know, I like, and for me, that's when I was able to start re entering the world and going back out to restaurants and being around alcohol. And it's, it doesn't even affect me because I just don't drink. Same. But I will say something um, because it came up for me in my sobriety. I had um, some acute chronic pain for about a year after an injury. And um, it wasn't bad enough to require pain pills, but I wanted pain pills every single day of that year. Like I was obsessing over, like I really wanted pain pills. And conceivably I could have gotten them, but it wasn't honest because um, I didn't really need the pain pills, but that pain was so triggering. And what I did instead of taking the pain pills, cause I would have abused them. I'm not against pain pills. I've had surgery during recovery. I had a C-section. I had to take pain pills totally, but this particular pain was just aggravating enough, but, a you know, a Tylenol would have worked to take the pain away, but I wanted the pain pill. Mm-hmm. And so I, I knew, I knew that I was being a drug addict about it. And I was devastated. I was like, why am I, why do I have to be a drug addict? Why can't I just be someone who can take pain pills and not be affected by it? And I Mm. shared about it. And I went to so many meetings and shared about it. I must've made people so annoyed because I was like all I shared about, but you want to know something? It kept me sober. And I never once got a prescription pain pill for that. And then the pain went away. You know, I healed from that physically. And so it's because sometimes you're not tempted by alcohol. So what's the big deal? You're sober. But when you're really like you ask, what do I do when it's hard? That was so hard. And I look back on that in awe that I didn't abuse pain pills because I was so obsessing over them like crazy. And I shared about it and I would write about it and I would write and write and write and write and write about it and talk to my sponsor and and then just not take pain pills, you know? Thank you for sharing that story. I think that's so interesting for people to be able to hear that sometimes our alcoholism can play out in different areas of our lives and it will start to wear different coats, different jackets and dress in disguise and try to come in on it at a different angle. So just to be really vigilant and you, you, you shared then that it was the honesty, wasn't it? That's what really held you accountable and kept you safe. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, the other thing as well is I, I relate to this as well. S sometimes when you share from the floor, it's the most honest and vulnerable shares I find that, that I, that give me the biggest impact. So sometimes I can see someone get up and they'll be working through a process for six months and they'll get up and share about the same thing every single week. And it's, it's them showing up and continuing to be honest that it almost has this flow on effect to everybody else in the room. Like everybody, we're all learning from each other's experiences at the same time. Rather than you, you just getting your own life experience, it's really profound, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Oh, Brandy, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. And like I said, I just think that the, the way you show up in the world today and the way that you give back and continue to share your own story to help others in recovery is, is just so, so beautiful. There's a question that I like to finish on that I ask all of my guests, and that is, what are your three non-negotiables today that allow you to live happy, joyous, and free? Oh, wow. What a good question. I never, ever, ever forget God. That's the number one non-negotiable. God is first and everything. Um, I am valuable and anything that comes in and tries to make me feel unworthy doesn't belong here. How do you navigate that brand? You say there's, there's a person that's coming into your energy field and they're starting to have you question your values or, or, or your, the value of your self-worth? Like, how do you set those boundaries today? I don't let them in my life. They're, it's just not even, it's right now. You not. don't even entertain it. Mm. No, I, because people pleasing is such a big <laughs> demon, right? And so I could get caught up in trying to fix them or change them or prove them wrong. I No, they're just out, you know. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and then, God, this is such a good question. I think just to be true to yourself, you know, anytime I feel like I'm being not true to myself, I know there's something wrong and I need to look at that and I need to pause. If I may not have the answers right now, I just need to pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. And me asking for that, and getting that space like to me space is a non-negotiable i have so much going on all the time and i need to carve out space and time for me and for my recovery and if i have a commitment I, it can't be broken mm, that's beautiful I can just tell from, from your energy that you do live from this God-centered place. And, and like I said, what you're giving out to the world is absolutely beautiful. So on behalf of everybody listening today, thank you so, so much. Brandy, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Well, I would uh, love for people to go to my Instagram page, which is at Brandy Ledford. Um, and I have a fun event coming up in Los Angeles on October 18th for Friendly House. It's a luncheon gala um, that supports Friendly House, which is an incredible rehab and sober living facility. Um, and I'd love for people to come join me for that. 
Amazing. I'll make sure I pop all of that information in the episode show notes. Brandy, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so much for joining us here today and for giving thank us your time. You. Thank you. That was fantastic. It was really wonderful to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks, Brandy.